I'll be reading from the NIV, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17, 18, and 19. Command, <clears throat> command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Heather. I have uh, three 10-minute sermons I'm going to give you this morning. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. Those may not have been the exact words pressing themselves on a certain battalion commander's mind that evening, but it was something really close to that because, truth be told, he was up against one tough fight. He was moments away from uttering an order that would commit his ragtag unit to a fight to the death with a well-trained, better-armed, highly experienced foe. He had never commanded men in battle before. Most, if not all, of his men were untested. They had never been to war, yet here they were, ready and willing to follow him into the bloody maelstrom and probably to death. Such was their loyalty and trust of his leadership. They were such good men, he thought to himself, but they were green, and he was about to send them against a hardened battle into a hardened battle under an experienced and ruthless general, a general who had just bagged a superior foe and thrashed them. But the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. This race had finally come to its end, and his guys were dog-tired. They had just come from a forced march, three days, two nights, heading due north, pursuing the enemy, covering 130 miles on foot, pausing only for the briefest of rest periods, lest their quarry escape for good. And now, as the twilight deepened, he peered out from his concealment at, this, at his opponent's disciplined encampment. Off in the distance, less than half a day's march, lay their own fortified, well-defended territory. They were nearly home. By noon tomorrow, his last opportunity, poor as it was, would evaporate. Time, critical since the beginning, had finally run out. For his exhausted men, there would be no time to rest and gather strength. It was now or never. The man knew that if he did this thing, his life would never be the same again. No longer would he be able to live in comparative peace in this land. No longer would his claims of neutrality be respected or recognized. He would be marked even if he survived. He would become a target for terrorist attacks and assassination attempts on himself and on his family. If he did this thing, he would have to live from then on as a man always prepared for war. But he had made his decision. He would attack immediately. Not a good time for battle, considering that his men had no night vision technology, but neither did the enemy. 
He had clearly articulated the rules of engagement to his company commanders, and the prime objective was clearly fixed in their minds. They would rescue the hostages first, at all costs. Get in, get the captives, get out. That alone would be a miracle if he could pull it off, and he dared not hope for anything more. And then as darkness deepened, he did what no sane military strategist would even consider. He divided his men. They would attack from two directions simultaneously. But all that he lacked notwithstanding, he did possess two tactical military advantages. First, he had the, the element of surprise. As of this moment, his forces, no matter how outnumbered and outgunned, remained undetected. That counted for a little bit. And second, he was a friend and worshiper of the Most High God, creator of heaven and earth, and that trumped everything. The Bible says that in Genesis, in Genesis 14, verse 15, that Abram attacked them and routed them, pursuing them as far north as Hobah, north of Damascus. Verse 16 says that he not only rescued the hostages, his nephew Lot and the women and the other people of Sodom that uh, Chedorlaomer and his four Confederate kings had taken, but he recovered their possessions as well. And, and his unit pursued and slaughtered the Elamite king. It was an almost unbelievable success. It was also the first battle ever recorded between the people who would eventually become the Israelis and the people who would eventually become the Palestinians. There would be many, many more battles from the next 3,500 years right down to our very day. But here's the reason why I wanted you to think about this story this morning. It's because of what happened next. Something very interesting. Genesis says that after Abram returned from defeating Chedeliomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. In other words, Abram returns home with the people of Sodom because remember, Abram's nephew Lot had been living there in Sodom when he was captured. And so the king of Sodom has come out to give Abram a hero's welcome home. A hero's welcome because Abram demonstrated remarkable courage and he has just pulled off the impossible a huge risk he took but he rescued the hostages and he brought back all the treasures that had been ransacked from Sodom now watch what happens next then Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine he was priest of God most high and he blessed Abram saying Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Question is, who was Melchizedek? Some people think that he was another well-respected king of that region, but there are some problems with that. First of all, he's never mentioned again before or after in Genesis and he's obviously, obviously a worshiper of the true God and a king at that. It's hard to believe there was a king of, of some region there who was a worshiper of the true God. The writer of Hebrews comments on this story with these fascinating verses in chapter 7. And remember now the whole theme of Hebrews 
is that Jesus is better, all right? He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Levitical priests. His covenant is better than the old covenant. His promises are better. Jesus is better. And the, the writer is now going to make the point that Jesus is better than Abraham. That's his whole point in bringing up Melchizedek. He says, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abram returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. First, his name means king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. That could not be any earthly king. No beginning, no end, you know, lives forever. Who, who could that be? In fact, Hebrews says that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which means Melchizedek was divine, which is why most scholars believe Melchizedek in this story in Genesis was an appearance of God in the flesh. He was an appearance on earth of the pre-incarnate Son of God. The word for that is theophany. And he comes and he appears to Abram after his defeat of the allied kings. So here's Abram, a military amateur who against all human odds has just thrashed an overwhelming enemy force. And here's Melchizedek, God incarnate, who comes out with what most Christians would intuitively recognize as a kind of prototypical communion meal, and he blesses him. What does Abram do? The Bible says he gave him a tenth of all the plunder. Now, the writer of Hebrews is making the point that Jesus is better than Abraham. He says, just think how great he, Melchizedek, was. Even the patriarch Abraham, who was really high in Jewish estimation, gave him a tenth of the plunder. And without a doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. Why does Abram do this? Why does Abram give Melchizedek a tenth? Because God has just done the impossible for Abram. Abram knows it. He could not have ever won that battle without God's direct in, in intervention. And so he returns a tenth of his increase as an acknowledgement that God is God. And that God is the one who gave him the victory. And that he himself has been blessed. That is a foundational concept. And it is the first time in Scripture that the concept of tithing is mentioned. Now, three weeks ago, I talked to you about generosity and how living generously is a foundational trait of Christian character. We thought about generosity specifically on that day in terms of church budget and giving to the local church. Scripture has lots to say about being generous with our money. But it's almost a self-evident truth, isn't it? I mean, you can all, it just, you intuit that. If we're Christians, we ought to be generous in our giving. This morning, what we're going to do is spend our time thinking about the minimum standard of giving. The minimum standard, right? And that God has set up in the Bible, he calls it tithing. We've just seen how it started, at least the first recorded instance of it in the Bible. 
What we're going to do in the next few minutes is check some of the references throughout the Bible and uh, look in particular at how our church interprets those principles, all right? The Seventh-day Adventist church. And then to finish up, we're going to come back to this principle of general giving, which is the treasure principle. How many of you remember the treasure principle? We're three weeks out from that now, so it's probably very dim in the recesses of your mind. Three weeks out. Anybody remember what the treasure principle is? You can't take it with you, but what? You can send it on ahead. That's right. Jesus said, you know... um, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. In other words, heart follows treasure, right? So store up treasure where? In heaven, yeah, where moth and rust don't don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's the treasure principle. That was review. All right, on to tithe, and then we'll do a quick survey, all right? The story of Melchizedek and Abraham is the first mention of tithe in the Bible. The second time the idea comes up is with Jacob. Jacob, of course, is the grandson of Abraham, and his particular story is found in Genesis 28. Jacob has just cheated his brother Esau out of his inheritance by impersonating his brother and deceiving his old blind father Isaac. And he's fleeing for his life because Esau has threatened to kill him. And Esau was kind of a burly guy. He could do that. Jacob is scared. He's alone and he's brokenhearted because he figures he will never see his mother and father again. He will never see his homeland again. He knows his situation is so desperate that the only thing that could change it is the direct intervention of God. And that night he has a dream. And in that dream, he sees a ladder going up to heaven. And and then he sees the Lord in his dream. And the Lord makes a promise to him, a promise to give him land and to bless all his descendants, all the people of the world through his descendants. He basically was, was reiterating the same promise that he'd given to Abraham, the covenant, all right? In the morning, Jacob awakes. And when he remembers his dream, he makes a vow to the Lord. And this is what he says. If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, he says to God, I will give you a tenth. Notice how this is similar to the Abraham story. They both give us the reason behind tithing. And that is, tithing is a response on the part of the human being who realizes God has done something for him or her that he could never have hoped to have accomplished in his life on his own, by his own strength. Okay? An acknowledgement that God is God. Okay? This is the foundational principle behind returning tithe. It helps us to remember that God is God and he has intervened in a way that, that, that has given us what we could never, ever have hoped to receive on our own. That's the bedrock. Now, there is an interesting phenomenon that happens with human beings, especially when they become prosperous. And that is, you know, 
When things are going pretty well, they, humans, we, tend to forget about God. You see, when things are going bad, when life is tough, we remember about God. You know, we appeal to God. But the more prosperous we become, the more we tend to forget that God's blessings come from God. We tend to think that, you know, we are really the ones who are pretty smart, pretty industrious, pretty talented. And we forget that God is the one that has given all that to us. Moses warned his people about this when they were about to cross over into the land of promise. The 40 years of tough wilderness living were coming to an end and the people were about to cross the Jordan and live in a veritable paradise compared to what they had been living in in the wilderness. Okay, They would have fine homes. They would have vineyards and farms and, and flocks and herds and plenty of food. And so Moses warns them, and you can read this warning in the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy, and he says, When you have eaten and are satisfied... Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. This is the whole principle behind why we return tithe. It helps us to remember that it is God who gives us the ability to have any kind of benefit, all right? He gives us what we could never hope to get on our own. And it is a very recurrent reminder, okay? Because we need a reminder. We tend to forget. So that's the philosophy behind tithing. And we get that philosophy from the first two times it is mentioned in Scripture. The next time tithing is mentioned is in Leviticus 27.30. And here's what it says. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy. Here we learn who tithe belongs to. Who is it? It's the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Is the tithe ours? No, it's not. It belongs to the Lord. That's why we don't pay tithe. We return it, okay, because it's not ours to start with. That's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, this, this is not an ambiguous uh, scripture in the Bible. And by the way, if you read on in the 27th chapter of Leviticus, it tells us exactly how tithe is to be figured. It says that if you have a herd of animals, then you line them up and you march them through the chute one by one. And every 10th one that comes out the chute, why that one goes to the Lord. And you don't try to arrange them ahead of time so that every 10th one is kind of a, the scrawniest or a weakling. Or, no, you just arrange them randomly, line them up, drive them through. All right, at random. Doesn't matter if it's black, white, sickly, strong, lame, whatever. Every tenth one that comes out, you just send it over to that special pen over there. Those are the Lord's animals. All right? It was very simple. 
sacks of grain, bushels of fruit. It was the same way. It's still really simple when you think about it, okay? I mean, imagine, imagine if everybody just said, okay, every tenth paycheck, no matter how big or how small, every tenth paycheck I get, I just endorse it right over to the Lord. That would be pretty simple, wouldn't it? Of course, uh, the people back then lived in an agrarian culture, and we don't live in an agrarian culture anymore. None of us, I don't believe, has herds of animals, but the principles are still the same. The principles. A tenth of our increase, okay? And it takes maybe a little bit more figuring to to determine what our increase is now that we don't live in an animal-based society, but... You know, a tenth of whatever God has blessed me with that increases what I have this month over what I had last month, that belongs to God. Okay. Tithe is mentioned also in Numbers 18, verses 21 to 32. Just look at the first part of it here. Verse 21 says, I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do at the tent of meeting. You remember there were 12 tribes in Israel, 11 of them were given huge tracts of land as their inheritance. This is where they raised their crops. This is where they raised their herds. But the Levites weren't given any land at all. Instead, they were the ones who were singled out to take care of the tabernacle. That was the worship center of the day, okay, the big church. Because they didn't have any land, they couldn't grow any crops or raise any herds. And so they couldn't make a living. So God directed the tithe to be given to the Levites. That's how they made their living. God said, all right, you Levites, you know, you get the tithe. That's how you will live. That's how you will eat. The tithe will be your inheritance. That means that the Levites were dependent upon the faithfulness of the other 11 tribes to do what God told them to do. And by the way, if you take a look at verse 23, what does it say there? It says, this is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In other words, it's not going to be abolished at some future time. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 4 to 8, God tells his people where to return tithe, all right? Here's what it says. You are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There, bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and your freewill offerings. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. Okay? Now, Deuteronomy 14 has similar instructions, but with a couple of fascinating additions. Listen to this. First of all, God made a provision for the tithe to be used to buy food and drink for a big party every year that was invitational for the whole nation, all right? And in verse 28, it says this. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your town may come and eat and be satisfied. Who are the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows? Who are they? They're the poor people, right? Because they don't have any, any means of support. They're the ones who are in poverty, all right? 
Now, most scholars believe that this, what this means is at the end of every third year, the people returned a second tithe, and it was used primarily to help the poor. God is hugely concerned about the poor. He is, always has been. It's, a, it's not just a thread that runs through Scripture. It's like a rope, right? So here is a simple summary of what the Old Testament teaches about tithing, okay? Here it is. Tithe is one-tenth of our increase. Tithe belongs to God. Tithe is to be returned to him at the place where he chooses his name to be known. Tithe was used to support the Levites, who were the temple workers. Tithe was the minimum standard of giving. It was the starting point. There were offerings and all kinds of other things on top of that, right? But tithe was the starting point. Randy Alcorn, by the way, says it like this in his book. He says, tithing is for the Christian like training wheels are for the bicyclists, right? Tithe was also used to feed the poor. And finally, tithe was a response of love to God for his blessings, a reminder, you know, to help his people not forget that their ability to generate wealth came from God. So, how do we translate that into our culture, right? So, here's how we translate them into our lives, these principles. Number one, tithe is still 10% of our increase. Tithe still belongs to God. Tithe is to be returned to him where his name is known. And in our day, that is what? That's the church, okay? That is the church. That's where God's name is known. Tithe is used to support the workers and to some extent the work of the church, we don't, at least in our church, use the tithe to help the poor. Maybe we should, you know, or to enjoy a big feast at camp meeting time. If you want to you get under somebody's skin, when you go to camp meeting, go up to Jerry Russell, our treasurer, and say, hey, you know, we know in the Bible, uh, tithe was supposed to pay for the meals here at camp meeting, so where's my meal tickets? Ask him, see what he says to that. But it is still a love blessing, a love offering to God for how he has blessed us, okay? Something that he has asked us to do so that we will not forget that he is the one who has given us the ability to generate wealth. You know what? Every time I return tithe, I don't think about all the extra stuff I could have bought with that money. I think about the fact that God has blessed me with the ability to generate wealth. That's what it does for me. Okay? I, didn't, I didn't give myself that ability. It's not because I'm so smart. You know, I'm not. He gave me the ability. Every time I return tithe, that's what I am saying to myself. Right? Now, how about the New Testament? Some Christians say we don't return tithe anymore because in the New Testament we're not under the law. Well, what does that mean in the New Testament when it says we're not under the law? It means we're not under the law as a way to be saved. That's what it means. But the law still provides a moral framework for the best way to live my life, right? I still refrain from murder and lying and coveting and adultery and that stuff, you know, because that's simply just not a very fulfilling way to live life. It doesn't work out too well when you live that way. I still enjoy a special weekly celebration with God on the Sabbath. I still return my time. 
because Jesus told the religious leaders of his day who loved to criticize people, he told them, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, rue, and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without what? Leaving the former undone. Truth is, New Testament says hardly anything about tithe, but it does say that. Jesus does say, don't leave it undone. The problem is, a lot of Christians do leave it undone. And three weeks ago, I gave you the statistics. Here's just a little review. Less than 9%, less than 9% of practicing Christians in America tithed their income to a church last year. And of those 9% of practicing Christians who say they returned tithe, the average tithe was only $1,141. That means they're all living in poverty, right? Here in the Squim Church, we have 154 active family units. Out of 154 active participating families, 75 of them returned at least $1,141 in tithe. That was the national average. Okay? That means that 49% of our active members are, are doing at least the national average. And tithe for the 104 families who returned any at all was $3,485. That was the median, right? That's pretty good compared to 1141 But of 154 active participating families, 51 of them returned zero, nothing. A third of our active people, nothing at all. So really, we can do better than that, can't we? Because God has blessed us. He has blessed us. And we need to remember that he's blessed us. And tithing helps us to do that. Now, three weeks ago, we looked primarily, primarily at our local church budget, all right? Remember, I shared with you a very important concept, and here it is. Every single dollar spent on local church ministry here, except for my paycheck, comes from the offerings that you give to the local church. It does not come from tithe. Not, nothing comes from tithe. All right, everybody clear on that? The, the ministry of this church is funded by your offerings, not your tithe. That means heat, lights, homeless meals, community services, Jay's paycheck, Colette's paycheck, Michelle's paycheck, maintenance, new doors, anything we do around here, none of it is funded by tithe. It all comes from what you people give as love offerings to the work of God here in Squim. And without it, this church could not function. So thank you. And please, please be faithful in your offerings to the local church. Then the question comes, however, well, if none of the tithe is going for anything around here, what does it go for? You know. So I'm going to share that with you. When you return tithe here in the Squim Church, 100% of it is forwarded on to the Washington Conference. That's how our church at large has chosen to interpret the principle of where God has chosen to, to put his name. All right? It's at the conference. It goes to the conference. Now, in 2016, 
you returned $359,000 of tithe. That was sent on uh, to Auburn. And when it gets over there to the conference office in Auburn, how is it spent? Well, I called up Jerry Russell, the treasurer of the conference this week, and I asked him, I said, Jerry, send me the data. And he was happy to do that because it's not private. It's not secret. And I put it in a little chart for you to see. It breaks down the typical dollar into how it is used. And here we go. All right. Out of every dollar the conference office receives that is marked tithe, 38 cents of it is used for what they call church programs. Now, this includes the salaries of all the pastors in the conference and the evangelists in the, in the conference. That's the, the lion's share of the 38 cents, okay? But it also goes for other things that are done in the conference, like the operation of Sunset Lake Camp, okay? The cost to provide camp meeting, for which you have to buy your own meals, okay? That, that all comes out of tithe, uh, of the 38 cents. Next, 17 cents out of every dollar goes to the North American division and to the general conference to pay the wages of all the workers in those offices and to keep those offices open, the light, the heats, the, the whatever they need to keep those offices open and to operate many of the programs that operate out of the division and the general conference. This is money that is sent directly out of our conference to support the higher levels of the church. And then, out of every tithe dollar you return, 15 cents goes toward Adventist education in our conference, mostly salaries. Now, here you, you need to listen to this very carefully, right? Only a small percentage of our teachers' paycheck is funded from tithe. Roughly, it is the percentage that that teacher spends in her time teaching things like Bible, all right? By far, the lion's share of the teacher's pay comes from tuition and from offerings that you give to the local church and our church school. Last year, the teachers in our conference were over, the, the wages for all of our teachers in our conference were over $19 million, or $10 million. Only $2 million of that came from tithe. So less than 20% of the teachers' salaries are being paid out of the tithe. And... Out of this 15 cents, five cents, of, five cents goes to appropriations to Walla Walla University and Oakwood University. Those are the two, the, the two higher education places that your tithe helps to subsidize. Next comes funding for retired conference workers. 11 cents of every tithe dollar is spent for pensions and health care costs for our retired pastors and teachers and administrators. And we have some here in this, in this congregation. Okay? And they worked for years and years and years, and now the church takes care of them through the use of the tithe. And then, of course, there is money that gets forwarded on to the union for their work. In our conference, that's 9%. Nine cents out of every dollar gets sent to Portland to the North Pacific Union headquarters. And there it is used to pay the salaries of the workers in the, in the union conference office and to keep that conference office open and to fund many of the union initiatives. And by the way, there are some really good initiatives that are 
that are run out of the Union Conference. Um, the Creation Study Center is just one of those. And uh, in the spring, in May, Dr. Stan Hudson will be here, and he's going to be putting on a top-tier program for us on creation science, one that we can be proud to invite community people to. And it won't cost us a dollar because his, his salary is paid from the time, right? Next, 10 cents on every dollar goes to operate our own conference office in Auburn. This pays the wages of our conference office staff and keeps those doors open. And finally, at the very end, about a half a percent that's left, about a half a cent out of every tithe dollar goes to help small conferences in our union, and those are Montana and Alaska. So that is how our church chooses to use tithe. I want you to notice something. 26 cents of every dollar leaves the Washington Conference and goes up to chain to the higher levels of the church. People say, hey, what's up with that anyway? Why do we do that? And who decides that? And here is the answer. The church decides that. The church decides. The principle of tithing, the returning of 10% of our increase to God, that is a principle which is thoroughly biblical, but how the tithe is used, that's a little bit different. Different churches, different denominations use it in different ways according to the way they believe God is leading them. And biblically speaking, there does seem to be a bit of latitude about how it is used. In ancient Israel, of course, it was used to, to, to help the poor. We don't do that today. Maybe we should. In the Adventist church, the way tithe is used is determined by policy. And those policies can change every year, and they do change every year. They don't change by much, but they, are, but they change. The percentages change every year. Okay? They are not set in stone. So where do the policies come from? Well, honest-hearted men and a few women whose minds are hopefully open to the influences of the Holy Spirit, sit down together and they weigh the needs and the biblical principles against the resources. And they make decisions and they create policies on how the money should be used. And then representatives from the church come together in constituency meetings and they vote the policies or they reject them. Policy is not an unchangeable law. They are flexible plans based on principle. Tithing is a principle. The use of tithe is based on policy. Now, here's the rub. What if you don't like the policy? What if you don't agree with the policy? What if you think the policy is wasteful or inefficient or just plain wrong? Does the church have some policies that are wasteful or inefficient or just plain wrong? I think it probably does. You know why? Because the church is composed of imperfect people who live and operate in a fallen environment. That's just life. So when you don't like the policy, do you just stop returning your tithe? Is that what you do? Of course not. Because tithing is a principle. It's God's minimum standard for people who are learning to be generous, for people who are growing in the grace of giving. What do you do? You work to change the policy. 
That's what you do. And that can be tedious. It can be, that can be tough. But that's what you do. Or you trust that God will change the policy in his time. That's what you have to do. You just have to trust that. Now, another question. Is it possible that God may direct a person to return tithe in some other way than through the normal channel of the church to the conference? And I would say probably yes. It's possible that God may direct somebody to do that. If he does, that is purely between God and that person. Well, then is it possible that God may direct somebody to return no tithe at all? Well, from my understanding of Scripture, I just don't believe that God would do that. I don't. Listen, if you're a genuine Christ follower, you don't have the option of saying, I'm not going to return tithe. You are under direct command of God. He says, please be honest with me. Test me. There was a time in the Old Testament when some of God's people didn't bring an honest 10% tithe to him. Some were maybe bringing nothing at all. Times don't change a lot, do they? He was really disappointed, and he was hurt, and he's still disappointed today. And here's what he says. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. In other words, resources, so that the work of the kingdom can go forward. Now, this is a very famous verse. It's from the book of Malachi. You know that. He says to his people in verse 8 of Malachi 3, you're robbing me. Anybody ever had somebody steal something from you? Does that make you happy when that happens? Or does it make you angry when, that, when that's happened? I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. God says, you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Notice he says, bring the whole tithe. How much is a whole tithe? 10%, right? Now, some people say, okay, I'm going to go about this gradually, all right? I'll start with 5%. Well, 5% is better than, than 0%, isn't it? But it's not a whole tithe. Here's what Randy Alcorn says in his book. He says, that's still robbing God. It's like saying, I used to rob 10 convenience stores every year. This year, by God's grace, I'm only going to rob five convenience stores. <laughs> the idea is not to rob God at all, isn't it? You know, that's the, the idea. The tithe is his, not ours. Because tithing is a love response to God who has done for us, what we could never have hoped to accomplish on our own. To return tithe is biblical. It is a stewardship issue. It is a generosity issue. Where you return it is not a generosity issue. It is not a giving issue. It is not a stewardship issue as much as it is an ecclesiology issue, a church governance issue. And for there, for that, You've got to trust, and you've got to work, and you've got to get busy. So let me just put that little chart back up there for a few minutes and ask you a question. If you choose not to return tithe to the church, to not mark your envelope or not check the box on the electronic giving uh, page, mark tithe, according to this chart, this chart, where does the work of God suffer? Does it suffer here at the local level in Squim? No, it doesn't. Not too much. Because remember, the work of God in this local church is funded by offerings, not tithe. 
It begins to suffer in other places, maybe far away from this church. It means that the Washington Conference might not be able to hire as many workers to build the church in western Washington next year because that's where the biggest proportion goes, right? It means that there might be fewer teachers hired in our church school or support people in our conference office. That's where it suffers first. Of course, eventually it affects the upper levels too. And whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing is a topic of honest and genuine difference among God's people today. But here's my guess. My guess is that the real reason most Christians don't return tithe or an honest tithe is because they don't want to. It has nothing to do with policy. They just don't want to. They've become used to spending on other things that they value more than the kingdom. Ask yourself this question for a moment. If you were suddenly downsized, if your income was reduced by 10% tomorrow, would you die? How many of you would die? Raise your hands. Nobody would die. You know what that means? You've all just determined that we can all, we can all afford to return tithe. It will not kill us. Right? We can afford to do that. So here's the question. What's it going to take for you to want to? To want to do it. How much more does God have to do? He's already given you life and a home in the richest nation there's ever been in all the history of the world on the face of planet Earth. You go to bed in a nice, soft, warm bed every night with your, with your stomachs full 365 days a year. He's provided you a measure of good health and the ability to enjoy life and contribute to the well-being of the community in which you live. And then, because you blew it, he left heaven and came down here and lived an absolutely spotless life on your behalf under the harshest circumstances. And then he died the gruesome, bloody death spiked to a cross so that you could be forgiven. And then he rose up out of the grave so that you could have new life right now, right here, a life that will never end. Plus, he called you to be his special child, his treasured possession, and he surrounded you with a bunch of like-minded believers to share your journey in this thing called the church. Not only that, but he has sent you his comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be your guide and your helper and your protector. Plus, he's given you special gifts and abilities that make you unique and perfectly suited to be able to serve other people, not to mention the fact that he has called you to partner with him and the heavenly, heavenly beings in the, the boldest, most audacious, most significant enterprise ever, the rescue of other people so that they can have eternal life too. And then, as if that were not enough, he's got a whole eternity waiting for you, an eternity that will be absolutely chock full of the most exquisite and wonderful pleasures you could ever experience, while the fullness of life will go on and on, uninterrupted, forever and ever. What more does he have to do to make you want to be honest with him? He has done it all. God says, and this is our text for this morning, you who are rich in this present world, don't be arrogant or put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put your hope in God, who richly provides all things for your enjoyment. And then Paul writes this, and he's writing to Timothy. 
Timothy was a pastor. So these are instructions for pastors, right? This is what pastors are supposed to do. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly life, all right? That's the treasure principle. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And so, I am commanding you, be honest with God. Let's change the giving statistics here in Squim, shall we? We can do that. Be lavishly generous when you give to God's work. You will be blessed. All right. Closing story. The year was 1888. Alfred Nobel's eyes dropped from the newspaper he was reading, and he put his head in his hands. Nobel was a Swedish chemist who had made a fortune for himself by inventing dynamite, which is really good for blowing stuff up. Alfred had just finished reading, believe it or not, his own obituary in the newspaper. It was a mistaken entry. It was Alfred's brother Ludwig who had passed away, but somehow the reporters had gotten it wrong and confused the two brothers. The merchant of death is dead, the headline proclaimed. The obituary went on to describe a man who had become rich by an invention that helped people kill each other and wreck things, and it shook him to the core. That day, Alfred Nobel made a resolution to use his wealth to change his legacy. And when he died, eight years later, he left more than $9 million to fund awards for people who work to benefit humanity. And today we know those awards as the Nobel Prizes. That man had a rare opportunity to see the end of his life and yet have, an yet have the chance to change it. And he did. He invested in something of lasting value. We can do the same thing right here, right today. And I hope that you will. So that when your one and only life is finished, you will be remembered not as somebody who accumulated transient treasures you couldn't keep, but as a man or a woman who invested in heavenly treasure that you can't lose. You have been good to us, Lord, way beyond what we deserve. And you have done for us things that we could never, ever hope to do for ourselves. And I want to just thank you that you've given us little tokens along our life that we can remember that fact by. I want to ask you to make us faithful to, um, to trust you and to practice those disciplines in our life. Make us into generous people. Make us so that we can excel at the grace of giving. We want to be like you. Thank you. Amen.